0: Well, as we've been going through our Christmas series this month, we've been looking at Isaiah chapter 9, primarily verse 6, and the four titles or names that Isaiah is giving to Jesus. And as we've been talking about, these are uh, prophecies, predictions of when Jesus comes, this is what he will be like. This is how he will show us what God is like. He'll live out these these titles, these nicknames as Qualities of God. And as we come this week to the third, that third title in the list, uh, we come to Everlasting Father. Now, that that name just by itself, Everlasting Father, can be a little bit confusing. It can even be a little bit troublesome. So if you grew up in church, you've probably heard before, been taught um, about the Trinity, that we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit— and so it might seem a little odd to have a passage that's talking about Jesus but calls him Father. You think, well, in, you know, in doctrine that God is the Father, Jesus isn't the Father, so that might be just a little confusing for you. But here's what, what Isaiah is really trying to get at. is He's not necessarily speaking into this you know, idea of the Trinity because that came quite a few years after Isaiah prophesied about Jesus. No, what he's really trying to get at is... That our relationship with Jesus is much more of that to a father than to a a king or a president. That even though Jesus is this this mighty God, this prince of peace, this, this wise counselor, even though he is that, even though he sits on the throne and is in charge of everything, we are still able to have a relationship with him, to approach him as if he is our father. And that's just different from what everybody else would expect or be looking for. Now, that may be just you know, one little challenge, maybe not a difficult one, but just a little one. But we can also have a hard time with this name because of our own experiences. Because whenever we hear God called Father or Jesus described like a father, we just can't help but imagine, imagine God through our own experiences. So, for example, if, if your earthly father was an incredible guy, like just, I mean, you have warm memories, you you know, you remember your dad teaching you to fish or hunt or how to take care of the car or, you know, uh, being willing to play dress-up with you or have a tea party with you or whatever it might have looked like, you know, or, you know, being on the phone with you late at night when you had a tough decision to make and needed advice, then you probably, you know, hear Everlasting Father and have, you know, very warm, positive feelings and emotions about this title because you've got a You've got a high ceiling. You're like, well, my dad's awesome. You know, my dad was great. So you have this high ceiling. And so it's easy for you to be like, yeah, God's God's my father. Easy. But your ceiling isn't high enough. Because what Isaiah is trying to prove is that actually God is far better than your earthly father. He is far greater than your best memory with your dad. But there's, you know, there's another flip side of that, which is, you might uh, be hearing this, and you might have a father that when you hear Jesus ascribed as father, you kind of cringe a little bit. You're a little uncomfortable. Because, you know, you don't have all these fond, warm memories of dad. Maybe, you're, maybe your dad died too soon, so you just don't have those memories. Or maybe you had a dad that just sort of ignored you, or was abusive, or was incredibly angry. And so when you hear Jesus or God talked about like a father, for you, that doesn't make you feel good. That makes you feel pretty lousy, pretty terrible. You don't, even, you don't want to think of God like that. Because for you, the bar is so low that it, it wouldn't take much. It wouldn't take much to prove to be a good dad. But for you, the bar is so low that if God's father, then he must be pretty lousy. And what comes to your mind is not warmth, but anger, rejection, shame, constantly looking for approval. Or it might just be that you don't have any experience because you didn't grow up with a dad. And in fact, that's easy for all of us to do, and we all do it. You know, we all come to the Bible with glasses on. And I'm not talking about, for those of you who are like me and you have prescriptions and you need to wear these, I'm talking about we kind of have these tinted glasses on when we come to the Bible. And they're tinted by our experiences. So when we read Scripture, certain things really stick out to us and certain things we just kind of miss. Or we assert, assume certain phrases or words mean something because of what we've lived through, what we've been through. And just like how, I mean, if you've ever had this moment where you've traded glasses with somebody or maybe you've had like, you know, one of your kids or grandkids like, hey, can I, can I just try on your glasses? And they put them on like, whoa, how do you how do you live like this? Like everything's blurry and they get bug-eyed and they see the world through your glasses. The same thing for us. If you could somehow take off those, you know, these, these kind of glasses that we wear when we come to the world of the Bible, and you could put them on somebody else, they would go, whoa, this is how you see the world? And you would do the same thing. Because to you, it's, well, that's normal. That's what you always see. But to other people, that's not their normal. It's different. And so I just want to encourage you today for these next several minutes, if you could take off those glasses. So whether that's you have a lot of uh, cynicism or just anger or frustration because of your father, or whether that's because, man, my dad was awesome whatever it is, if you could just take those glasses off for just a little bit, set them to the side, and let Jesus, just for a little bit here, tell you the kind of father that he is to us, what our relationship is like with him. So let me go back to kind of how our relationship with Jesus is different than what we might think, because Jesus is, you know, he is the king of the universe, he's in charge. But, you know, for most of us, our relationship with Jesus does not work like, for example, with our, like our relationship with the president of the United States. Because here's the deal: the president of the United States, whoever they are, every you know four years or eight years, or whatever, they don't they don't call you on your birthday, right? They don't they, you don't get like a, a you know a Christmas card from the president and their family, you know? They don't come to your birthday party. They don't buy Christmas presents. They don't call on the weekends and hey, how's it going? How you doing? You know, how's the kids? Heard you got a new dog. What's that been like? They don't do that, right? The president, he just doesn't do that because your relationship with the president isn't personal. You don't really know him. And if you were to, you know, for some reason, be invited into the Oval Office for something, you would put on the best clothes you had. Some of you might feel like, I've got to go to the store and I've got to get something different because we're going to the Oval Office. And no matter what you think of the president at that time, you would, because we're asked to be respectful, you would still say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, Mr. President. You would sit at attention, you would pay attention, you, would, you, know, you wouldn't slouch down in those big couches in the Oval Office, you would sit up straight, kind of on the edge of the seat. But if the president was your dad, you would not put a, you know, a suit on and a tie, you would not put on your best dress, you would just walk in however you're dressed, hey dad, what's going on? You'd you know, flop down on the couch, kick your feet up, what are you doing today? What, you know, what's going on around the world? Hey, do you have time to grab lunch today or do you have too many national security meetings going on? Do we have to reschedule that? Like that that's what it would be like. And that's how our relationship, that Isaiah is trying to say, our relationship with God is more like that. It's you can walk into the throne room of the king of the universe and say, hey, dad, what's going on? Hey, this is, this is going on in my life. And he actually has time to like, listen to you and to spend time with you and to get to know you and to help you. So That's what Isaiah is trying to lay out for us with this word of father. Because also he's an everlasting father. And everlasting just means something that will always be there. And so that's where our our relationship with our fathers come in. Because if you had a good relationship or a bad relationship, and if God's an everlasting father, then you might think, well, he's always going to be angry at me. Or he's always going to be this awesome guy. Like, you're always going to have that. But very little in our life is everlasting, right? It just, you know, the stuff we're about, you know, if you haven't opened any Christmas presents yet, here in a few days you'll get to open some presents and guess what? Those presents will be brand new. I remember last year, uh my mom and dad bought me this nice pair of, of white shoes that I really wanted, these white vans, and they were awesome. And they're already like my brother, my younger brother warned me, he's like, No, they're gonna get dirty really fast, which I knew, and already like they're not they're not very white, they're a little bit of a beige off-white, and I've tried everything to clean them, but I can't. And just like that, nothing's everlasting. The presents you open, before you know it, some of, them are, some of your toys are going to get broken. I hate to break it to you. They're going to get broken. Uh, some of your things, your clothes are going to get stains and wrinkles in them. They're going to get, you know, sweaters are going to get snagged. You know, you get a new car, and before you know it, it's an old car, and it doesn't run very well, and the paint's chipping, and the, the interior kind of has a funky smell, and you're not sure where that's from. But that just happens. But Isaiah says, now this God, he's going to be like your father, and he's always going to be there. He will never go away, he will never disappear which is really important for Isaiah to speak into Israel because Israel at that time, they're being warned about going into captivity and the nation of Assyria and then Babylon is going to come in and conquer them. And then when that happens, they ask these really difficult questions. Like, well, does God, does God really care about us? Is he, does he really listen? Does he really pay attention? Because he made us these promises and he said he was going to be our God and now look where we are. Is he ever going to fix this? Is he ever going to undo this? And maybe for a lot of us, that's sometimes our relationship with God. We say, well, God is good when life is good. And then when something bad happens, we start to ask the same questions. Well, does God, does God really care? Is he really listening to me? Can you really do anything about this? What's going on? And Isaiah's trying to say, hey, look, God, is, God does not change based on our circumstances. He's the same. He's everlasting. And just because our circumstances change doesn't mean God has changed. He's still at work. He's still doing something. So there's one particular story in the Gospels where I think Jesus is probably the clearest about what it means that he's going to be like a father to us and that God is our father. And it's a story that we're all pretty familiar with. You've probably heard this. Even if you don't grow up in church, you've maybe heard this story or a version of it. And this story shows up in Luke chapter 15, and we typically call it the prodigal son. So Jesus, he's been telling several different stories, and he gets to this third one, and he says this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now right there, that's that's a problem. Because now you've probably, I can imagine, at least once have gone to your parents and said, Hey, Mom, hey, Dad. You know, uh, this new Spider-Man movie came out and we all want to go see it and maybe, you know, go grab some dinner before or after. Can I, can I have some cash for the movie, you know, go hang out with my friends? And your parents may roll their eyes and be like, well, you have an allowance. Where, where'd that go? Or, well, you have a job. Why don't you pay for it yourself? Or maybe like, all right, here you go. How much do you need? And you're like, can I have a little more? Get some snacks at the theater, whatever. You're like, all right, fine, here you go. That's not what he's doing here. This is not, hey, dad, I'm, I'm going to go do this. Can I have some money? This is, hey, dad, I wish you were dead, because I want my inheritance right now. Whatever's in the will, go ahead and give it to me. I'm not going to wait around anymore. So that's what his dad does. He divides the property between them, which means he divides them up between his kids. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now you've got to be in a pretty desperate situation to be so hungry that the feed that they're giving the farm animals looks good to you. Like, I don't know if you've ever worked on a farm and seen like pig slop and just cow feed and thought, or you know, sometimes they give cows salt blocks and thought, that looks good. I, would, I want that. You know, not very appetizing. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. And you know what he's doing there? We've, we've all done it. When you, you know you've really messed up, you start rehearsing your apology, don't you? Like you start putting together your apology speech. Like, well, this is what I'm going to say, and this is how I'm going to grovel and beg for forgiveness, and if they say this, I'll say this, and if they say this, maybe I'll say that. And, and you kind of get your expectation together of how that person's going to act, what they're going to say, what they're going to do, what you're going to try to do, and you, you, just, you rehearse it, and you play it over in your head over and over and over again. So he's got his speech ready. But pay attention to this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with anger and began to yell and scream and shouted at him from the front yard. How dare you show your face around here again? I can't believe you. Wait till your mother finds out. She's going to be so upset and so disappointed with you. And you spent all your money already? Okay, yeah, that's, that's not how the story goes. Some of you used to it. It doesn't go like that. Let me try it again. So while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with shame and went inside the house, closed the door, shut the blinds, told the servants to ignore his son, didn't answer the cell phone every time he called, and just pretended like he wasn't there. Okay, so that's, that's not how it goes either. But maybe for some of you, that's a little more of what we might expect, is I've done this horrible, terrible thing, and Dad's going to let me have it, and I'm never going to hear the end of this, or he's going to ignore me and give me the silent treatment and not talk to me. But that's not what happened. Instead, Jesus says that when this father saw him, he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, so he gets started on his apology speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can get any further, the father cuts right in. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, that's not at all what that young son was expecting. He was probably expecting a beating. I mean, even earlier when he's rehearsing his speech, he's just hoping to be like one of his hired workers again. Just like, let me go live out back in one of the little, you know, houses or tents you have for the employees and just just pay me like them. Let me work like one of them. I don't even expect to get to come back inside the house and be your son. But the father throws all that to the side and, and says, no, you're still my son. I forgive you. You belong here. So we're all pretty familiar with this story and even calling it the prodigal son or the lost son, even though Jesus never calls it that. I find it interesting that the way the story starts is not, well, there is a young son who is really impulsive and irresponsible. But instead it starts with, there is a, there is a man who had two sons. So what if, just, just for this morning, we just recalled, we just, instead we called this story, not the prodigal son, but the loving father. What would the story look like if we just looked at it from the perspective of the dad in this story and what he does So as we kind of look at each of these kids, we notice that he does something—he does something different for each of them, because we've, you know, we've we've followed the younger son for the most part. But then the story turns and goes back to, oh yeah, there's this older son. We've kind of, you know, the story kind of hasn't really talked about him. So they have this party, they're having this celebration, and Jesus goes on with the story. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Well your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has sent him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you gave me even you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, knows that, not my brother, when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fad and calf for him. Now, I kind of find that interesting that the older brother kind of adds a little bit to the story. Because earlier, all we know is the young son went off and spent his money on, on wild living. Doesn't say anything about prostitutes. The older brother throws that in there. Little, little sibling rivalry, right? It's, it's well, He didn't just do this, he did this. Mom, he didn't just break the window. He broke the windows and he broke your favorite, you know, your favorite cup. Let's just, let's just kind of lop it in together. I did that, but we'll just lop it all in together. So he just kind of adds to it and he's furious because, you know, if, if we're kind of stereotyping siblings, he's the older son. He's being responsible. He's done his job. He stayed home. He's worked really hard. He's, he's got up every morning, worked around, worked around the family business. When the sun goes down, he goes to bed. He's done his job of taking care of the family, but his younger brother gets to take all this money and go spend it and blow it and be be silly and, and impulsive, and yet he gets this party, and he's not happy about that. So the father talks to him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So here's what he does for this older son. Now the older son, if you haven't figured it out or heard it before, the older son represents church people. The older son represents us. We've We've been in church for a long time. We've grown up in church. And we're used to a certain way that things are supposed to go. That's what we're used to. Just like the older son, he's used to, well, this is the job. These are the responsibilities. And you're supposed to stay and work at home until... Dad passes away, and then we get the inheritance, and then we take care of the family. That's what we're supposed to do. But that's not how the story goes. The younger son breaks all the rules and goes off and seems to get in trouble, but then he comes back and seems to get rewarded. But here's what the father does. And I want you to notice, just like what he did for the younger son, he also does it for this older son. Because for the younger, when the father saw him a long way off, now I don't know how far away that is, Usually in my head, when I think of the story, I just imagine like the younger son, he shows up at like the driveway and then the father runs to him. But actually, I kind of think it's, it's much further than that. Like this might have been, a, you know, a kind of a typical home back then, which is probably maybe up on a high place and it had all these fields and crops around it. And so maybe down in the valley, a very, very, very long way away from the property, he could see his son traveling up the road and he ran down to him. But he does the same thing for the older son. He hears he's upset, and so he leaves the party, and he goes out to where the son is, and he starts to talk to him. So he does the same thing for both of them. But here's where it's different. For the older son, he reminds him, and he refocuses him. He doesn't scold him, but he reminds him, and he refocuses him. He reminds his older son, well, you've always been here. You've always had access to everything. You've you've, you've been able to go into the house, and you can get into the bank account, and everything that's here is yours. You've had it the whole time. Your brother, on the other hand, he left. He's he's gone without this for a while. So he reminds him, you've been here. You've had all this. You've had all this. But he also refocuses him on what really matters. And that is, we need to celebrate because your brother came home. Because he came home. And kind of underneath the surface, the father's, it's sort of like he's trying to teach his older son and your heart should want to do that too. Your heart should not be about, I'm angry, I'm so mad, I can't believe you're doing this for him. Your heart should also be, yeah, let's go into this party and celebrate. Because what Jesus does in this story is he shows us what really matters to God. Because what matters to God is doing whatever it takes, short of sin, to meet people where they are. And notice, when the son gets mad, the father doesn't say, you know, you're right son, I'm so sorry, I sorry that I did this. Hey, servants, call off the party. Go ahead, you know, throw, throw my other son back outside and, and get him some work to do. He doesn't say that. He just sort of says, well, this is the way it is. We're throwing a party. You can come be a part of the party, but we're not going to shut it down. In other words, he doesn't let the anger of his older son change his decision. He's like, this is actually the way the world is supposed to work in God's view. You throw parties when people come home. You celebrate when someone who's been gone a long way comes back. That's what you do. It's not full of judgment and yelling and anger. It's, let's throw them a party. Now, I think a lot of us, like, like the older son, this is kind of what happens to us. We grow up in church, and we get used to things going and working a certain way. And we just sort of begin to expect, well, that's the way it goes. That's the way church works, is, is these certain things. And there's a certain way that, that you came to know Jesus and others in your family came to know Jesus, and you just sort of expect, well, that must be how everybody comes, comes to know Jesus. Same way with we, we also have our, our glasses for church, and we think, well, this is, this is the way it's supposed to go. This is the way it should work. And so we think, well, everybody should come to Jesus the way I came to Jesus. Everybody should care about the exact same things in church that I care about. And uh, newsflash, not everybody cares about the same things you care about. The way you came to Jesus may not be the way somebody else comes to Jesus. But we kind of get these expectations. And that works. That works great when we're talking about, like, you know, person X across town somewhere. And, hey, if, maybe if we do these things or if we act this way, they'll, they'll come to know Jesus. But what happens when person X has a name and you actually know that person? What if instead of it's this random person off at a distance, what if it's your kid, your grandkid, one of your best friends at school? Now it's different because wouldn't you move mountains if it meant helping your kid or your grandkid or your best friend get to know Jesus? Wouldn't you be willing to sacrifice some things if it meant that person would be willing to come to church or, or join you in a service project or, you know, be in a small group or something? Because I know, especially, especially if you're a grandparent, I know you spoil your grandkids, all right? because my grandparents try to do that to me, and I usually let them, you know, I don't usually stop them. But, you know, especially when I was in college, when my grandpa would call me to check in, he, some of his same questions all the time would be, hey, how are you doing on money? Do you need any money? And I knew, if I just said, well, grandpa, I, I could use some money, whatever amount I gave him, there'd be a check immediately in the mail, right, like, it's coming, you know, and he would also ask, how's your car running? And He's just like, hey, grandpa, the car's running fine, but it's like, do you need new tires, so you'd, you need money for an oil change, you need anything fixed, you need this, you need that. Like he would just always want to make sure I was, I was good. But imagine doing that, moving mountains for everybody, just like you would if it was someone you know really, really well. And that's what this dad is trying to get his older son to understand. Now, of course, if the older son represents church people, the younger son represents those who've run from God or don't know God yet. And if you relate to the younger son, then I, I want you to see what he does for you, what God does for you. Because this loving father gives the younger son redemption and revival. Redemption because he forgives him. He doesn't even let him finish his apology speech. He cuts him off and says, hey, you know, get him some better clothes, put, you know, put a fancy ring on his finger, you know, make him the honored guest, take him to the house, clean him up, let's let's throw a party, get the best food, the food we've been saving for like that special occasion, get it right now, let's have this party. And that's what he does. And the party, I think, for this young son would be a revival. Because here's the deal, when somebody throws a party for you, it usually means they're very serious about the occasion. Like if they put together a birthday party for you, it must mean they really care about celebrating your part, your birthday. You know, or if you get a, a you know, some kind of a party at work, it must mean they really care about your a job well done or years of service or an accomplishment. So if, if you came to somebody, I mean, imagine going to your parents or maybe it's your spouse and you know you've got to apologize for something you really messed up on and you apologize and instead of getting the, I told you so, you know, or kind of the eye roll or the, you know, thank or like, okay, I forgive you. And you're wondering, do they really forgive me? I'm not sure. What if they said, I'm so glad you said, that. hey, let's throw a party. I'm going to get your favorite meal. That's what we're going to do for dinner. You know, we're going to, you know, you love a movie. We're going to watch your favorite movie or you like doing this. We're going to go do that. We're going to throw a party all about you because, this is awesome. This is great. You would be like, wow, you must truly be serious about this. And that's what the father does for his son. He shows him, he just shows him how serious he is about forgiving him, that he's going to move mountains for him. And that's what this story is all about. So if that's you, if if you're here or if you're listening to this and you would relate more to the younger son, maybe you grew up in church and it's been a really long time, You, you know, and it's because it's kind of Christmas season. You're, you're checking this out or tuning in, whatever. And it's just been a long time. And you're just afraid if you ever come back, man, God's going to let you have it. He's going to yell at you. He's going to chew you up one side and down the other. You're going to get judged and you're scared. Or maybe you don't really know God. And again, maybe it's Christmas or for some reason you found this. And you're just like, I'm just checking this out. I don't really know. But here's my challenge for you. Here in just a few minutes, we're going to do something called uh, Communion. And so if you're watching online or if you're in the room with us, I just want you to pay attention to what happens during communion. And then after communion, uh, the worship band, they're going to play another psalm. And during that psalm, I want to challenge you to meet me uh, in this little room off my right, your left, through these double doors. We call it the parlor. It's sort of like a next step room where you can come, and I want to just talk with you about where you are in your relationship with Jesus, whether that's I know nothing or it's been a while. I don't care what it is. And don't worry, I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to chew up one side and down the other. I just want to help talk with you about how much God really loves you and cares for you. And I want to be able to talk with you a little bit about what God might be inviting you into. Because he has an invitation for all of us to do something. And if you're, if you're you know, watching this online and listening on the radio, then here's the challenge for you. I want you to connect with us. I want you to get a hold of us. So, I want you to go to Facebook or Instagram and send us a message. I want you to get on Google and search Campbell'sville Christian Church and find our info and get a hold of us. You can call us, you can email us at hello at SeavilleChristian.org, and we would love to talk with you, to have that same conversation. Whether it's over the phone, over Zoom, or FaceTime, or if you live close by and we can get together for lunch or coffee, love to do that with you. Because as we celebrate Jesus every year at Christmas, we remember we celebrate a God who ran us he saw us from a long way off and he came to rescue us he came to bring us into his family and that's a reminder that then it's our turn it's our turn to run after others it's our turn to help move mountains so that others can know that they have an everlasting father who loves them so every week we take communion together And we do that as a church because communion is how we celebrate and remember what our life is really about. That it's really about being part of God's great adventure to redeem the whole world. Communion is a reminder that we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves. So as we get ready to take communion all together, I just want us all to take a minute and just pause and slow down and recognize that we're part of something bigger that God's doing in the world. And so I just want you to take a minute and just kind of silently reflect And then Evan's going to come up and lead us all together in taking communion.